Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 169 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center, University of Texas. It's Friday, it's June 12th, 2020. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. It is day 99 of no daycare if you're if you're scoring at home. And, you know, who's counting? Are your kids uh, at this point in a good rhythm? Are you and Karen feeling like you have a, a regular household rhythm of things? Or is it is it are you on the precipice of complete uh, a breakdown of order in your house? Why can't both things be true? This um, I, you know, the, the, you've already you've already gone over the precipice. It's easy enough. To, I mean, you know, keeping the girls on a rhythm has actually been not as impossible as I thought. The problem is, you know, Karen and I both have unpredictable work schedules. So Karen will have like what she thinks is a quiet morning and then a work emergency pops up. I'll have what I think is a quiet morning and then the Insurrection Act pops up. Um, <laughs> well, but, um, there has not been a quiet morning uh, for uh, national security and rule of law topics for, for quite a long time now. So also, I mean, just as I mean, we recorded last, you know, in our joint episode with, uh, with Ben last Monday night. And I mean, the, the amount of, so Karen calls it nerd prom. Um, right now, Karen, Karen calls it national security nerd prom. Um, when we team up with Lawfare podcast, no, but just 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 what just, just the confluence of everything that's going on. Just you know the the last fifty the, the the fortnight that we've gone through when with with regard to you know hot button obscure crazy national security issues that we had lulled ourselves into thinking were just you know fun academic pursuits. I mean, I mean Bobby. You're- which amendments of the Constitution do you have in mind, Steve? So, I mean, I, you know, I, I was actually thinking, like, our episode title should be, you know, in which we finally talk about the Third Amendment. <laughs> when, uh, when I was in law school, there was a, you know, a parody, a musical, like every law school tends to have. So Drama Society did um, a knockoff of Writers of the Lost Ark. And uh, in, that's not in or there. There was a line that my friend Mike Leota gave where all the students are gathering and talking about what kind of lawyer they're going to be. And he shouts out, I want to be a third amendment lawyer. And of course, nothing could be uh, less practical. And yet over the past week, we had occasion almost to talk about it. It, 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 it just got close enough to warrant inclusion. It's hardly our only civil military topic the, this week, is it? What no, I mean, I, so, so just to give a quick preview, um, the, the oral argument in the Michael Flynn DC Circuit mandamus petition has apparently just wrapped, and we're barely going to talk about that because we have, by my count, Bobby, eight different civil military relations topics to cover um, in our run through today of what's been going on. Most of these are law, but there's a little bit of also policy here too. Um, we have um, a brief discussion of qualified immunity because it actually has some pretty significant national security connotations. Um, it and does, I- and that's, I, I'll say that that is an area where, uh, you know, it's, it's when you do a, a show that has a particular topic and focus area and the country is, is aflame with headline attention day after day after day on, on an issue that's not in your core area, it can feel a little bit, like you're just, you know, you're, you're focused on the wrong stuff. Obviously, the country is is enmeshed in in the policing uh, brutality and policing reform debates and the larger questions of social justice and, and racial inequity that that are consuming everyone's attention and ours included. Um, the place where our area of expertise perhaps most directly intersects with that set of debates would, I think, be the qualified immunity yeah. uh, discussion. So we're going to nerd out on quali- qualified immunity more generally. And it's not just that it provides us an excuse to talk about policing reform when that is the the issue of the moment. Uh, it, it's 
really as much or more that it's also something that hangs over national security activities as, as much uh, or, or nearly as much. And, uh, but no question, the reason why it's topical is, is the policing reform debate. And, and I mean, I've, I've argued perhaps unsuccessfully that if anything, qualified immunity is an even bigger problem in national security litigation than in ordinary litigation. But we can, we can get into that when we get to that. Right, right. Okay, that'll um, be good to discuss. We also want to talk about this major trial court ruling in the Guantanamo Military Commission's last week in the Majid Khan case, uh, mm -hmm. where the, the judge presiding over Khan's um, sentencing proceeding ruled that evidence of Khan's, as the judge said, torture um, is not only admissible as part of the sentencing calculus, but can and should be taken into account in uh, deciding what the appropriate sentence is. Um, Bobby, that's a big deal in Majid Khan's case. It's an even bigger deal, though, if it's going to also spill over into the 9-11 case, where you know I think that could have significant ramifications for a potential um, capital conviction. Right. It could be, it could become a mitigation factor. In fact, it, my understanding on, on, yes, he used the word torture, but I believe that the uh, question of whether torture actually occurred was reserved for future. That's right. No, that's right. He did not say, right. No. So he did not say, I find that torture occurred, but he said, you know, this, um, this conduct, if it happened was torture and if proved, it can be taken into account in sentencing, which is a right. big, you know, big deal. Right. Um, we're going to talk very, very briefly about the Flynn argument that just wrapped up um, in the D.C. Circuit, um, give it about the amount of time it deserves. Um, President Trump yesterday signed an executive order with regard to sanctions for the International Criminal Court. I think we probably have some views about that. We got, we got an IEPA activity. IEPA. Yeah. Um, we also have some really apparently shady IEPA stuff going on in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York. So uh, maybe a, if we have time, we'll briefly talk about a really, really interesting order that Judge Ali Nathan um, issued earlier this week. But Bobby, we're saving the best for last. Frivolity. I finally, I finally watched Watchmen. Whoa! And once I started in, I couldn't stop watching it. I'm so excited to talk with you about it. And that would be true in general. But of course, I mean, in, you know, spoiler alert, in case you've not watched the Watchmen uh, series on HBO and you're thinking about doing it, uh, get right on it because it's awfully timely. Uh, there are themes, there are race and policing themes. There is Tulsa and the 1921 uh, horrific uh, events that occurred there. Everything seems quite relevant to today. T Tulsa, you say? Yeah, Tulsa. Why? I, I, I saw a news thing somewhere that President Trump is holding a rally in Tulsa, his first public rally in months. Um, next Friday. Next Friday. But Bobby, next Friday, that, that's an interesting date. A day. A day in June. A day in June. A day in June. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. More on that later. Uh, all right. So should we dive in with our, our slew? Of oh, wait, can, can I say one last thing before we yeah. pivot to what we plan? Yeah. It is also the 12th anniversary of the Supreme Court's decision in Boumediene. Mm. Happy anniversary, Boumediene. You know, by next week, it could be uh, uh, narrowed heavily, if, depending upon what the court rules in the undocumented immigrant case. Let's, you want, why don't we start there? That's a, there's a topic. Uh-oh. Uh, no, why, why don't we wait for the Supreme Court to rule? All right, fair enough. I, I, I'm curious about the, the, the premise of that description as Boumediene being a certain way that would be narrowed dramatically. I think, I, I mean, I, I think it's, it's, it's speculative. So, right, the, the Supreme Court has a case called Thoracigium versus Department of Homeland Security, um, in which it heard argument in February, um, and which may be decided as early, as early as next week, Monday or Thursday. 
which raises, among other things, the question of whether undocumented immigrants who are in the U.S. but not in lawful immigration status and who have been placed in expedited removal proceedings are protected by the suspension clause such that they're allowed to use habeas to attack the paucity of the expedited removal proceeding. Um, there are ways to rule for the government without messing up Boumediene, but there are also ways to rule for the government that would mess up Boumediene. So well, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to pin down the piece of Boumediene that you feel is a certain way now, but that might be about to get narrowed. I take it is the idea that suspension clause analysis is applicable to non-citizens who, who are not deemed lawfully present in the United States, but nonetheless, the claim can be made in what you're imagining or anticipating is that whereas Boumediene said, what I would have said was, at Guantanamo, it does. I take it you're taking the position that it, it, it was at least potentially read more broadly than that. And so it wouldn't be confirming my reading. It would be cutting back from your reading if the court goes the way you think it more precisely, right? So, so Boumediene holds that the suspension clause, in Kennedy's words, has full effect, right, at Guantanamo Bay. Right. Um, even as applied to non-citizens with no prior connection to the United States. Right. I would have thought that it followed a fortiori, right? That, that it necessarily followed that non-citizens on U.S. soil were protected by the suspension clause, right? And the Third Circuit in the Castro case, which is the part of the circuit split that forced the Supreme Court to take the Rossigium, held otherwise. Now, this is yeah. why I think this conversation is premature, because there are ways the Supreme Court could rule for the government without saying what the Third Circuit said, um, yep. but, but it's at least possible that it will. I hear you. And I think that's a, I think that's a reasonable reading of Boumediene that the a fortiori argument would, would extend. But I also think it would be a, a reasonable distinction to say that Gitmo not only had the peculiar qualities that left it, as Kennedy put it, within the constant jurisdiction of the United States, but also the fact that the people there had been brought involuntarily to that location and were being held in potentially indefinite detention, that those distinguishing factors might make them, might make the Boumediene rule not obviously applicable to the, even though you're in the United States scenario, and that's stronger, not applicable to that scenario. But in any event, we'll, as you, we'll, as you we'll, say, we'll, we're going to we'll, find out. We'll, we'll find about this when, when Brett Kavanaugh writes a 5-4 opinion about why you're right and I'm wrong. <laughs> so... Um, um, Civil military relations, uh, you want to start with the generals? Uh, yeah, we had, what, what, what a week, huh? So, the, the, you want to start with Mattis or Millie? So, so let, let me maybe take a step back and put this all in context, right? So, um, I think one of the most remarkable things that has happened since last we recorded has been the very public dissent from not just former Trump administration officials and Trump generals, um, but also to a less, not, you know, not dissent, but like sort of distancing from yeah. even current officials, including uh, General Milley, who's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Um, and all of this dates back to that messy, messy scene last Monday night, right, in Lafayette right. Square. Right, um, right. In the, both, both, so key elements, uh, the physical presence of General Milley on the ground, walking with the president in what turned out to be, well, a photo op, and not just any photo op, but but one that took place in the context of the uh, the coercive clearing of Lafayette Square, and about then, which the government repeatedly lied, and and then the scene, uh, the scene that I personally found disturbing, the use of a Bible as a political prop on the steps of an, of a church, 
Um, but the presence of the general in that context, which he clearly came to regret as, as the days tick by and is now publicly stated, mea culpa, I shouldn't have been physically present in that sort of scene. Um, I think he took a lot of heat for what probably he did not anticipate was going to play out a certain way and how he was depicted as having perhaps crossed the line himself. Um, in any event, he's walked that back. Meanwhile, former Secretary of Defense uh, and former General Mattis. Uh, General Mattis has come out and finally broken his silence, uh, choosing this set of events. And, and the larger, I think what activated him especially was the uh, aggressive rhetoric of the president in talking about how the military was going to be used. The, the rhetoric that also was echoed, of course, and amplified by Secretary Esper with his uh, battle space, his terrifically inappropriate comment about dominating the battle space in referring to how to uh, interact, how the military should interact with fellow American citizens in America um, to, to prevent or to control against disorder in the context of constitutionally protected assembly behavior. Um, but, 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 but the Mattis, kind of, I mean, the Mattis, the Mattis thing struck me, Bobby, as not being directed to Trump. Like, I think the, the media folks picked up on his very overt, direct, blunt criticism of Trump, um, his invocation of the Nazis, etc. I think his audience was not Trump. I think his audience was Milley and Esper, um, right? That, that from Mattis's perspective, the real sin of last Monday was that Milley in, you know, combat fatigues and Esper, you know, were side by side with Trump. Um, as if sort of, you know, giving the military's full endorsement, right, of what Trump was doing. And I took Mattis to be saying, um, that's the bridge too far. And it's not just Mattis. I mean, Bobby, we saw a remarkable confluence of public statements from the Secretary of the Army, from the, um, the Commanding General of the National Guard, right? I mean, we saw, you know, all of these um, reaffirmations of and fidelity to the Constitution. Right. And, and conspicuous, the, to, the framing was always, we are, we are here to be loyal to the Constitution. And the unspoken but clear part was, it's not about the particular office holders. The political aspect of the commander in chief is not part of their business and shouldn't have, it was being made to look that way yep. through, through a combination of efforts by the president that were purposeful and, and actions and conduct by those two key figures they were not intended, I'm sure neither one of them, well, at least I don't think General Milley was trying to, to come off that way, but, but but at least belatedly realized they had come off that way. Now, Esper also had the further, very specific, let's say something nice for Esper, he at least, he too intuited that perhaps active duty military should not be summoned into the D.C. area as part of that concentration or threat of forces, but then he had to walk it back. And I got to say... Um, I, I think that I'd yeah, have that's seen, to walk it back after being called to the White House. After being called to the White House. So what do you think? Should uh, This is a recurring theme for us, as several people pointed out on Twitter. Is, is it better that Esper uh, was there to maybe put on some breaks, even though he walked it back? Should he have quit rather than walked it back? Uh, it, do we, are we glad he's there since you get this glimpse that maybe he's, he's – got some decent instincts on some things. How do you feel? We got, we got, Esper had a strange week, man. Okay. I mean, so, so Esper, this all starts with Esper first trying to put out a story that he was duped into the walk to the church, right? That he, he, he was told they were going to visit a vandalized bathroom. He says, okay. um, I kind okay. of have a hard time. As one does. 
I kind of have a hard time believing he was duped. So it starts there with his sort of not quite apology, like I was duped, which, you know, either he's a rube or a liar. Those are not two good looks for your secretary of defense. Then he does, as you say, he not only does, he does two things that I thought were positive. One, he gets in front of being opposed to using the Insurrection Act, right? And two, he says he's going to send all of the troops who were brought to the DC area home. Then he goes to the White House and comes back and says, never mind. And then two days later, he sends them home again, right? And in the middle of all of this, he also issues an order, which we're going to come back to, to the out-of-state guardsmen who are in D.C. to not be armed, right? Um, We've had... So there's a lot lot of good there. And a lot of bad. And so, you know... But is the bad the price for the good? Right. So, for example, the the, the walk back, which is yeah. a, a moment of clear public humiliation for him. Yeah. And yet he he managed to implement the good policy, this, yeah. the, the de-escalation policy. And it's easy to imagine that that public humiliation was the price he had to pay to achieve that. But what's his credibility at this point? I, I don't claim he's got much credibility. <laughs> Well, or or does he right? So for for the for those who are in the know and can can know how to read what's happened here, did he successfully at at personal cost in terms of taking a public humiliation and leading yeah. to questions about his credibility? Did he secure a de-escalation of the civil military problem that was emerging there? Uh, and if so, could we view that as as a case of of Esper actually? doing the right thing and being willing to pay some personal price for it. And that's you know, kind of how it looks to me. The jury's out, I, I think. You know, I, I think uh, there's a lot to play for. But I, I, could we just say one, one point about the law, which might help to, to you know, because we knew a lot of, a lot of sort of just, just politics. Yeah, yeah. Right. We're just, <laughs> should we get to what we know about? Well, so, so Esper, just, I think folks may not be 100% clear on the military chain of command. Um, and so I think it might, like, um, we talk about the generals and we talk about Esper. Um, when it comes to the pure chain of command, Esper is a much bigger deal than Milley, right? Because even though Milley, as chairman of the Joint Chiefs, is the senior ranking officer in the United States military, he actually has no authority to command the military. Um, so under a statute called what? The, the Goldwater-Nichols Act, I think, right? From the 80s. Yes. Right? Um, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs is, is the senior military advisor, but he actually has no command authority. Right. Um, not a combatant commander, and the combatant commanders don't directly. There, there's, there's the indirect and informal aspects of this sure. to be sure, but he's he's not directly controlling the chain of command. Whereas Esper does, right? So, so under under Goldwater Nichols and 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 other statutes, orders flow from the president to the secretary, and from the secretary to the combatant commanders, um, right? And so that sort of structure is why you know even though um, Milley is an important symbol and figurehead and advisor the one whose actions carry a lot more legal weight, right, is the secretary. And, and then by extension, so of course here we're not even in, I'm the one that introduced combatant commanders into the picture. Here we're not in a combatant commander or COCOM setting, we're in a National Guard setting, um, but same point, that this, the chain runs from the, the president to the, the secretary of defense. Um, Although it gets weird. Secretary of the army, right? So, so, so this is where I, I well, I want to, I want to come back to the guard because I still, I want to, before we get to the guard, I want to talk a little bit about, um, well, so the, it's guard now? the army vis-a-vis DC, I'm a little fuzzy as to what the, whether with, uh, with a title 32 status. All right. So let, let, let's do the guard now. We'll, we'll, we'll okay, come back to the guard. Okay. The guard is a complex topic. We should lay out the bare bones overview, starting with the fact that when we talk about the national guard, we're talking about 
a set of military forces that are state specific in terms of how the forces are raised, supported, and sustained, and as a default setting, are state commanded. That is, the governors are their commanders in chief. Um, and and, and, they, and we should say, and there are 54 national guards because four of the six federal territories also have state national guards. Um, Puerto Rico has one, Guam has one, the Virgin Islands have one, and DC has one. Yeah. Um, now, part of why the guard matters here is because we never, Bobby, we spent a lot of time last Monday talking about the Insurrection Act. And so I think we can largely refer folks back to that discussion. Right. Um, other than to say, you know, Tom Cotton loves him some Insurrection Act. Um, one of the reasons why I think the president did not need to go that route, even to do what he wanted to do, was because he had access to upwards of 5,000 National Guard troops in Washington last week. And so um, I thought, you know, I think we both thought it would be helpful to talk about the different legal authorities he did or didn't have to do that and why, why that's a big deal. So before we introduce the DC complexity, noting, so introductory position, you've got state-specific units. They're on the state's dime, they're under state command um, when they're in state status. They can a state active duty status. State active duty status. There's two different ways in which they begin, it begins to get more complicated. One is they can be federalized, which is to say they can effectively be at the president's directive uh, called into federal military service. And at that point, yeah, they're still National Guard, but they're being paid under Title X authorities. They're operating under Title X authorities. In and the chain of command goes right to the Secretary of the Army. Uh, actually, well, it goes right to the Secretary of Defense. Defense. Yeah, yeah. So at that point, you're talking about, you, there's no real reason to focus on the federalism aspects as such. Um, there's the complex... Sorry, but, but federalization requires invocation of particular statutes. Like the president can't federalize on a whim. Federalizing requires a determination that the dozen or so statutes that authorize different forms of federalization are met. And those are pretty significant substantive right. criteria. But, but they're, the key, a lot of people miss this, is it's not up to the governors. Right. The governors don't decide. They, governors can request certain actions, but for our purposes, all the things that matter in the current fact pattern, these are things that under the Insurrection Act or otherwise, the president can decide to do these so, things. So you've got Title 32, you've, sorry, you've got state yeah. active duty status as the default. You've got what we call Title 10 status as the other extreme. And, and so then you've got the weird world and wacky world of Title 32. There we go. The feds are paying for it, but the troops have not been federalized. True. Okay. And so, so Title 32 status is something that has evolved a lot in the last 25 years, where there have been ever more contexts um, in which there have been federal missions for which National Guard troops have been useful but where there hasn't been a need for centralization of federal command and control. So disaster response, um, post 9-11 airport security, right? Operations where, um, the, you know, the federal government wants to pay for it because they don't want to sort of stick states with the bill for federal priorities, but where the guard is not needed as part of the army, the guard is just needed as the state guard. Yeah, um, right. And so there's one other, there's one other quirk, which is, um, in state active duty status, there's also a mechanism for one state's guard to be requested by another state, right? So there's EMAC, the Emergency Management Assistance Compact, which allows for basically um, Texas to say, hey, we need some help in New Mexico. Can we borrow your guard? Right. Um, but under EMAC, right, that all stays in state active duty land, um, right, where federal law has very, other than EMAC itself, federal law has very little to say about that. The weird Title 32 part is where things 
get messy and where last week gets especially messy and it gets complicated by the unique status of the DC National Guard. All right, so we have all these different units from a number of different states plus DC Guard in the Washington DC area. What issue arises? So there, are two, so there. Are two, so I think it's it. It would be helpful, Bob, I think, to separate out the DC Guard from the non-DC Guard, right? So the DC National Guard is unique among the fifty-four National Guard units in that it's the only one that is never subject to local control. So Puerto Rico, Guam, Virgin Islands, that structure is exactly the same. The governor of Puerto Rico, the governor of Guam, is the commanding officer. Is that right? Is the commander in chief of the guard until unless they're federalized. That's not true for DC in part because the DC guard predates the existence of the DC local government. Um, and so I think since 1889, the DC national guard has been commanded by the president of the United States. Um, and by, by extension, that's been delegated down under current authority. The secretary of the army is, is that authority by delegation. Yep, in conjunction with the adjutant general of the DC national guard, um, who's a, right. So, so what that means is that unlike, um, Unlike what would be true in Baltimore, say, right? If there's unrest in Washington, the president can use the D.C. National Guard without federalizing them, right? Um, right? Because, that, you know, he has sort of, he has both local and federal control over the D.C. National Guard. Exactly, yeah, exactly. And so, the governor. so the problem is that the D.C. Guard, Bobby, is small. Yep. Um, and so the D.C. Guard, you know, I think from the administration's perspective, surely wasn't enough. And so the president, through the Secretary of Defense, apparently asked upwards of 16 states, we don't know exactly how many, but at least 16 states, to send at least some National Guard troops to Washington to assist in the restoration of order. Um, and at least 11 states complied, sending somewhere between four and 5,000 troops. And so that's how we got to this phenomenon of out-of-state National Guard troops in D.C., without any request from DC itself, right? Without any request from Mayor Bowser under EMAC. And, and all that sounds, I don't see any problem with that. Um, when, when, if ever, do problems arise on this sort of command and control dimension? So I, I guess I'm not sure there's no problem with that, right? I mean, so the, the relevant authority, um, no, it was really unclear why, how this was happening, at least to outsiders. Um, until Attorney General Barr sent a letter in response to Mayor Bowser, I think on Monday of this week, Monday or Tuesday. Um, and Barr's letter cited this provision, 32 USC Section 502F, which, you know, it, it says um, that state guard units in their Title 32 status, right, can be requested by the President or Secretary of Defense to assist in federal missions. Um, but if that's true, Bobby, that's, you know, if that, if, that, if that can be read literally to mean all that has to happen is the president or secretary has to say, here's a federal mission, hey, states, will you send us your guard, right? Yeah. And that seems to be a pretty powerful backdoor around um, the Posse Comitatus Act, around the Insurrection Act, like that the president could, you know, request all of these state guard troops to go into these other cities. Now, the question is- Well, hold on, but yeah. that doesn't mean, the fact that they can request them doesn't mean that there's statutory authority to do law enforcement. But here's the problem, right? It has long been understood that guard units do not implicate posse comitatus in either their state active duty or their Title 32 status because they are not part of the army at that point, right? That is to say, the Posse Comitatus Act literally says any part of the army or the Air Force. Right. So you're, you're saying that 
by having a, a quick and easy way, as long as they're willing to spend Title 32 federal funds to pay for it, the president can always uh, ask and hopefully get cooperation from some governors to dispatch uh, military forces that then would be able to engage in law enforcement functions without prohibition and without violating the posse comitatus. And, and, and Bobby Barr's, I mean, Barr's letter says quite literally that some of the activities that these out-of-state guardians were involved in was searches, temporary detention, right? And like the kinds of behavior that we would think of as law enforcement. Yeah. Um, so, so, you know, I, I'm not averse to the idea. So, so I think I see two problems here, right? Problem, well, I see three problems, two legal problems, one sort of optical problem. Legal problem number one is doing this all without local consent, right? That, that you know, imagine a scenario where President Obama, right, sent the California National Guard into Texas over the objections of Governor Abbott, right? I mean, I think, I think Governor Abbott would rightly be pretty pissed at that moment because, you know, the president's foisting out-of-state guard troops on Texans without their permission. Well, there would be a real federalism issue there because of the lingering dual sovereignty aspect of Texas that Washington, D.C. does not enjoy. Well, so so maybe the answer is, right, maybe the answer is that, you know, we don't care about um, any residual sovereignty D.C. does or doesn't have, right? Maybe the answer is that, like, D.C. uniquely is not entitled to any voice. Um, I'll just say that 502F doesn't say that, right? That, that there's nothing about 502F that reads like this authority can only be exercised this way in Washington. Um, all right. But the second problem is the posse comitatus problem, right? Which is um, if they're still in Title 32 status, then at least by tradition, they're not subject to posse comitatus, even though, Bobby, it's abundantly clear that these out-of-state guard troops last week were in fact taking orders from Esper. Yeah, that's, that's the key thing there. If they were in a position where it's clear they're under still state authority, that, that's just the way the system is. Agreed. This is a curious environment in which they effectively were federalized. They were not just being paid, that's Title 32, but they were taking orders. And, not only, and, I mean, and we know they're taking orders because Esper ordered them to disarm, and they only went home when Trump told them to, right? Right. And so it does seem like, and so given that Trump, as he said, could have invoked the Insurrection Act and gotten this sort of result. So what's really at stake here? Well, it's avoiding the procedural safeguard that's inherent, first of all, in having to do the politically costly step of issuing the proclamation necessary to have Insurrection Act authority. And, and maybe someone would think, well, that's, that's a pretty meaningless hurdle. So there's no real difference here between what he could have done anyways in a more formal way and what he actually did. I don't know. I think I think it's telling that he didn't ever feel like he could quite issue that proclamation, that the politics wouldn't sustain it. And, but, and but, but I wonder, he didn't have to because he had this workaround. So that's my concern, right? Which is, um, you know, one can be comfortable with 502F in the abstract if it were clearer that it couldn't be used as a posse comitatus workaround, right? And so, you know, one easy fix to this would be to amend the Posse Comitatus Act to say, you know, for purposes of this section, the, the Army or Air Force includes the National Guard under as long as as long as at least in Title 32 status. No, I wouldn't. So I wouldn't I wouldn't generalize it to Title 32 because there are other like there's the Homeland Security provisions of Chapter 9 that I wouldn't touch. I would just say when deployed under 502F, like I would literally make it about 502F. Interesting. I have um, to think about like I'd like to know where else that authority has been used to see if there are other use cases where this would. Actually so, so I, I mean, I don't want to hide the ball. So it's been used to request out-of-state guard support for southwest border operations. Mm -hmm. um, it's been used um, for um, like large homeland security events, like 
inaugurations, right? Yeah, and, like, right. right? That makes sense. Um, but I just, those don't strike me as of a piece with this, right? Those are, like policing on the ground in American cities seems like a, a very different context for this kind of use of the you know out of state guard. I would think the the large uh, national security events like inaugurations, et cetera, would be very analogous in that what you're talking about is crowd control. Yeah. And in the worst case, should disorder break out and there be violence, potentially using law enforcement style force to detain and arrest. And, and to some extent, to use capabilities to surveil and monitor what's going on, right? I, I think it might be kind of kind of analogous. It's just that we typically don't see it tip over into that space. In the, I'll say, uh, I mean, and, and this is, you know, um, if you really dive into the weeds, in the domestic operational law handbook that the army puts out, the fact that these troops are not subject to posse comitatus is held out as a feature, right? Like, you know, it's like, you know, this- well, no, Right, because that if you want to do crowd control, you, you need to have some of these authorities. By the way, there's this whole other workaround that was uh, the subject of much attention last week as people tried to figure out who were all these Bureau of Prisons uh, special response units who oh were wandering the streets also doing uh, the same sorts of things and having the same sort of potential authority. And by the way, at least in some cases, refusing to tell anyone who they were. And I don't mean at individual level, like my name's John Smith. I mean, are you with the government? If so, what government institution are you with? Because you're all wearing kind of different hodgepodge, you know, military surplus looking gear. Uh, and it turned out after a lot of back and forth that the official answer was they were BOP personnel who having no statutory authority of their own to do this sort of role, had been deputized into U.S. Marshal Service status. Now, this is a really interesting parallel topic to all the things you were just talking about, which are uh, service member specific. What about all the different pieces of uh, law enforcement and quasi-law enforcement type communities that don't actually have uh, a remit by statute to perform this sort of function? Um, when reporters like Katie Bo Williams started noting that there were these people on the streets, and if you look closely at the photography, you could you could tell from their patches and T-shirts, looks like in fact they were coming from Bureau of Prisons facilities. Questions arose as to what authority they had to do this. Um, if you parse the statutes for BOP, um, they have a variety of capabilities. This ain't one of them. It's not on their list. Uh, this is in contrast to an authority that DEA has, where the attorney general can give them additional assignments. doesn't work that way with BOP. And so questions started going from, from some of us and the reporters through to the Justice Department asking, well, what is the basis for these people to be on the, uh, the line of crowd control? And, it, and early on, the answer was along the lines of, well, they're DOJ employees, ultimately, so you can just tell them to do that. No, that, that's not how it works. Um, and then the answer eventually was, I, I think, maybe even postdoc developed, uh, oh, they've been deputized as U.S. Marshals. And famously, as we all know from, uh, you know, the Old West and such, you can, and in the statute does bear out, you can deputize, deputize people. And when deputized, they step into the functions and capabilities and authorities of deputy U.S. Marshals, uh, which includes some law enforcement authorities. Normally, that's to be exercised by the U.S. Marshal Service uh, on courthouse grounds, protection of courthouses, and in execution of court judgments. But a little bit like the DEA, the U.S. Marshal Service also can have these additional expanded uh, functions at the Attorney General's direction. So it does actually work. There is an answer in the end, just as there is with the National Guard units. The question in both cases is, now that we've kind of been close to the abyss with the president talking about using overwhelming force, et cetera, and making you appreciate how you 
could, in theory, abuse these uh, personnel resources. Um, do we need to change the statute in some meaningful way in order to ensure that all these uh, important functions can be served, but that the risk of abuse would be minimized? And I'm curious, Steve, whether you have anything in mind that you'd like to see done, besides what you've already mentioned, um, to try to guard against misuse. Again, bearing in mind that there really are sometimes riots. There really is lawbreaking sometimes. Listen, I, 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 hope, I hope this came control. through last Monday. I mean, I'm, I'm not averse to the idea that we ought to have an authority to use the military for domestic disorder, right? The, the, the right. truth is how to cabinet. So uh, uh, I think these are two different questions, right? On the military side, I don't like end runs. Like if Congress wants to allow out-of-state guardians to do law enforcement, let it say so expressly. Indeed, posse comitatus requires express authorization. Yep. And so I would like to see the 502F issue resolved one way or the other. Um, and just one last, and, and one last on that before turning back to Barr. Um, and one of the reasons why my own instinct leans against this authority is because of what happened in Washington, right? So when it comes down, Bobby, to state requests, um, is it any surprise? that 10 of the 11 governors who said yes were Republicans and that all five governors who said no were Democrats, right? I mean, I, I don't like the visual of red troops versus blue troops, right? Uh, that's, yeah, we, there's no place for that in our-, in our and, yet, and yet that's what happens under 502F, at least, in, at least when the federal mission is politically charged, right? Um, so my instinct would be to actually reject this authority under 502F, but at the very least to crystallize it. I think the bar, um, marshals, park police thing is a lot more complicated. And part of why it's complicated is because there, I think the, the, the unique DC piece of it actually does become a much bigger deal because um, every single law enforcement agency in Washington is at least somehow under federal control, even the DC Metropolitan Police. Um, which is, you know, run by the city of Washington, which is administered by the mayor, there's a provision in the D.C. code that expressly allows the president to take over the D.C. police department in an emergency. Yeah. And so here we have a context where, unlike anywhere else in the country, the federal government has true plenary power over federal law enforcement. I would just be much more comfortable if it were clearer who we're talking about. Right. So so if I were Congress, I might be less worried about reining in these substantive policing authorities and more worried about ensuring that the relevant agencies are identified, that officers can be compelled to identify, you know, um, one, their name and two, with what unit they're associated. If they're if they're in uniform on the street, publicly exercising a law, you know, I'm not saying you can walk up to an undercover officer and say, you know, but, but if you are in uniform performing a policing function, I do not think it's unreasonable to require that you identify both your name and what unit you are part of. Yeah, it, it's so funny because so many people reached out to ask, uh, you, me, and others, uh, so what, what laws does this violate? Well, it, as near as I can tell, it, I'm sure there are policy requirements of identification for non-undercovers in, in all sorts of locations and settings in this country. But I'm not aware of any state laws or any federal law that actually that, that anyone ever thought it was necessary to have such a rule. Right. Because it's so preposterous to think that you would actually have deployed overt non-undercover forces in the street doing law enforcement functions, uh, refusing to say even who they might be working for. It's so clear what the policy problems are with doing that. The, the opportunities for mistake confusion, sowing distrust, and escalation risk.
But also, if, if something goes wrong, how do we even know who to sue, right? I mean, like, and how will we know who's account, who's responsible? Who's accountable? It's crazy. So, so one of the things I think, you know, I feel like the past several years has been nothing but a series of, of scenarios in which you think, all right, we ought to, somebody ought to fix this, somebody ought to fix that. Well, here's one. Um, certainly, there ought to be mandatory requirements, or at least default mandatory requirements of disclosure of identity uh, so that you can have clear accountability. Um, the idea that you could have troops who are just wearing military surplus gear won't identify who they are, but exercising public authority is an invitation uh, to, to serious, uh, serious problems. Um, all right. What else, what else do you want to say about this? Uh, what, what's this business about uh, kicking some guardsmen out of a hotel? What's happening? So, right. So, so then, so things really reached full preposterousness um, last Thursday or Friday, right? So, um, Senator Mike Lee from Utah, right, uh, raised a row on Twitter because apparently the Utah National Guard was booted out of the Marriott that they were staying in. Okay, uh, why were they booted? What do we know about why they were booted out? What was going so on? The best I can tell is they weren't actually booted out of anything, right? The best I can tell is that um, D.C. had declared a state of emergency. And for the duration of the state of emergency, there was a provision where the D.C. government would foot the bill, right, of responders of government responders who were in the jurisdiction right but mayor bowser as was her right terminated the state of emergency in dc i believe last thursday afternoon so no at more which, free hotel rooms for at, the at which point the necessary consequence was that dc was no longer on the hook for the hotel rooms and so senator lee decided to turn this into a whole like they're kicking you know, we came to help and they're kicking us out yeah. um and this of course awakened want to pay right and this, of course, awakened the long dormant mob of Third Amendment Twitter. <laughs> Third Amendment Twitter is a especially fun form of Twitter. A lot of handles were changed that day. Uh, of course, so there was no actual Third Amendment issue as far as I know, right? No one was being, I guess the idea is that Lee was suggesting that somehow Marriott needs to just house these people. And Marriott may not be a person, but it's an entity with the same Third Amendment rights that I guess you and I have Wait got. a second. So, so, so wait a second. So, so at the risk of having the first and only substantive conversation of the Third Amendment we're ever going to have on this podcast, right? The Third okay. Amendment refers to houses. Mm -hmm. So, oh, so we, have, we, have a, we have an interpretive dispute. Should we interpret houses to mean, should we give it a narrow meaning of homes as as in the private residences of individuals and family or other social units, can it include a place of business that's a place of public accommodation? Or were, and you know, let's get originalist about it. Would a would an, would someone at the founding in in the time of the adoption of the Bill of Rights have construed uh, this term to include inns and other you know boarding houses? And I have to say, I can't imagine the answer is yes, right? Like house is a particular term that I think like house does not mean like private property. House means house, right? Whereas the Fifth Amendment talks about property. Do, what, what do you think the chances are that someone has written an article about this trying to uncover the original meaning? If they haven't yet, you know, I think 2021 is going to be a wash with student notes about whether whether quartering troops in a hotel violates the Third Amendment. I love it. So there's an argument that it's not a Third Amendment issue at all. That seems possible. But here's where things get really messy. So the Third Amendment, except in the Second Circuit, the Third Amendment has not been incorporated. I was about to say, like, there's no way it's been the subject of litigation. It's not that it's 
been rejected for incorporation, it can't have been litigated, has it? In the Second Circuit, it has been. Um, and the oh, Second it has Circuit, been litigated. a case called Engblom versus Carey, and the Second Circuit held it's incorporated. But and it decided it was not necessary to a. Uh, no, 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 that it was incorporated. Oh, it is incorporated. Right. But, but, oh. but, but Bobby, the Utah, it's not incorporated in Utah. Right. And the Utah, the Utah Guard, you know, as long as they're not federalized, isn't the Utah Guard still right? I mean, this is this is the, but it would be the D.C. Circuit's uh, circuit law that would matter. Right. I guess so. This went down. I assume they're staying in town, but maybe not. Well, they, they've all since they gone must home. Have been in town. Yeah, yeah. They've all since gone home. But my point is just like, you know, only only Trump could give us a serious textual debate about whether a hotel is a house for purposes of the third amendment. That is awesome. Uh, that is, that is pretty fabulous. All right. Um, speaking of houses, right. So, sorry, I, one last point on DC and I want, I think there's one more military topic we have to talk about. Um, the last thing about DC, and this is where I got myself into a heck of a lot of trouble on Twitter, um, with, uh, a particular cohort of white male conservative lawyers, uh, uh, last week, which is one of the things that I think really comes through from most of this conversation, from much of what happened, is the consequences of having a jurisdiction like DC, where the local government has so very little control over anything, um, and where the local government has no constituency in Congress, and when the local government has no control over emergency powers on its own soil. Um, and you know, I have long been a supporter of some form of DC statehood, um, but man, if the events of the last two weeks don't, you know, help to explain what happened, you know, why statehood in this context actually is really important, right? I mean, not, not because, I mean, I think a lot of folks sort of knee-jerk react negatively to that because they don't like the idea of two more Democratic senators. Fine. In a world in which we can sort of not look at this purely as a partisan move, right? It seems like a lot of what happened in D.C. in the last two weeks would have not happened as easily in a world in which DC, at least most of it, was a state with a governor and with congressional representatives who could have advocated on behalf of the, of the city and the state. Uh, why isn't the better solution, in, insofar as one might also not like the idea of exacerbating the extent to which through the Senate mechanism, we provide outsized political representation to comparatively small units. Like Wyoming? Like, why? Right. Exactly. So, so why empower one relatively small city to have two senators when, you know, as compared to what New York City gets, et cetera, why not just fold DC into Maryland? So, I mean, that's, that is a common response. And I think there are a couple of different answers to that. The first is that would be better than nothing. But the second is neither Maryland nor DC wants it. Right. And so, um, I just, I mean, I, I understand the notion that we can't just take any old part of the country and carve it out and make it a state. Fine. Right. But DC isn't any old part of the country. DC is the, you know, DC and Puerto Rico are the only two, um, can, uh, uh, physical jurisdictions, right. That have significantly more people in them than the least populous state. And so it seems to me that the argument that these existing jurisdictions with historical borders, right. Um, shouldn't be entitled to representation in the Senate because they're small, right, compared to Wyoming population-wise or Rhode Island territorially-wise. Um, it just rings hollow to me. I mean, I just, you know, I, I think the larger argument, I, I think the, the stronger argument is that the Constitution might require some kind of federal district, but 
that can just be, you know, the mall, right? Like the White House to the Capitol and everything in between. I just, I, it, what, what we've seen in the last two weeks is what happens when you have a population that has no representation, right? When they, when they can just get like trod over with no one in a position to push back. I, I guess I'm, just, I'm trying to understand how it would have played out differently. Let's imagine D.C. was, in fact, simply part of Maryland. For, well, so first there would have been no, right, there, the, the D.C. guard wouldn't have been called out. But right? he could have federalized them. Fine. I mean, Good. He could have gone different steps. But I, I'm trying to understand on the ground how any of the things that were practically at stake about how the protesters were being treated, how, how order was being kept. So listen, La- Lafayette Square would still have been federal property, right? I mean, I, I think that's right. The problem yeah. is that I think, I think what a lot of folks didn't see was just how far and wide the military presence spread in D.C. last week. Like in my old neighborhood of Shaw, right, there were, you know, National Guard troops. Like there were, you know, there, there were low-flying D.C. National Guard helicopters, right? And so I just think that, like, it would have been a lot hard. What, what, what I saw a lot of last, in the, in the footage from last week was the federal government using unconstrained power on a jurisdiction that had no ability to push back. And it just seems to me that like we ought to be wary of that. Yeah, I guess I'm, I'm having trouble with the idea that there w- what pushback would have looked like or indeed whether if you, if you take, if you isolate, I think two things that stood out to me, um, the use of uh, tear gas or whatever smoke, whatever kind of, substance was used to clear Lafayette Square and the and the rubber bullets, et cetera, or the, the what the, the rubber bullet pellet grenades, whatever they were. That plus the the uh the intimidation flight of a helicopter, taking those elements out of it and focusing just on on the the much more uh commonplace just the presence of the, of the military throughout the city, uh in a context in which there was a great deal of disorder, I'm not sure what problem is being solved there by empowering a different political actor to have a stronger footing than the mayor had to push back. Um, anyways, uh, what about, we didn't talk about Tom Cotton's op-ed except in passing. Do you want to pivot over to that? Just briefly, because what I really want to talk about is forts. Um, yeah, yeah. We, let's, so, but Cotton still uh, has a nexus to what we've been talking about. I, okay, so I think that the idea of loudly calling for a militarized response and touting that it was very of a piece with the Esper dominate the battle space idea. Uh, terrible idea, very unworthy idea. Um, but I think it's also unworthy of the times to uh, clearly, in my opinion, just melt in the face of criticism and try to retract it all and say, oh, that was a huge mistake. We're, we're taking it down. You're a newspaper. You're going to print op-eds. They're going to piss people off left and right. That's part of your job. They chose to run with this one. I thought it was a little bit shameful for them to turn around and act like it was all some horrible error that they made and that something something substantively gone wrong. Uh, it just felt like they were caving in. And, and I'd, I'd, I'd like the Times and other flagship journalistic institutions to handle problems like that instead by saying that we print a lot of outrageous things in the eyes of some. Sometimes we're going to regret that we did it, but we're not going to like, say that somebody you know made uh, an error in judgment we're going to take it down from the site i don't know it, it just it felt like they were wilting and I, I look for our our media institutions to sort of stand up even for the unpopular speech which is not to say they had to run it to begin with but once they decided to i'd rather see them just stand by what they decided to do i have problems with how just about everybody acted um, um in this story um 
my problem, you know, I did not react to the op-ed the same way that a lot of people did, right? A lot of people said, you know, here's, you know, um, powerful senator, you know, potential Republican, you know, candidate for president in 2024, um, advocating, you know, turning the military against, you know, uh, a lot of people saw it in, in expressly racial terms. Yeah, I, I think I think a lot of people overread. I mean, it was it was plenty un, unappealing to me. Substance. As it was, but I think people were really kind of construing it as negatively as they could in some settings. Which, which you know, and I understand why someone like Tom Cotton may not deserve the benefit of the doubt, given things he's said in the past. I mean, that's, you know, I'm just, I'm not going to defend him. I mean, this is the same guy who four days earlier had said that we should deny quarter to protesters. Um, and, and, then then, and, then, to, and then tried to try to get with the, the, the suggestion that, well, of course, that was supposed to just mean, like, be tough. Right. He, he had, he had someone in his office search every single dictionary in the world until they found a definition that was not, you know, a war crime. Right. Um, I was just being metaphorical. Give me a break. He went to so, Harvard Law. You know better. Right. So, so, so you know, I, my problem with the op-ed, Bobby, is that it was sloppy, right? Like, it, it, it purports to quote Article 4 of the Constitution at one point and leaves out the part about a state request for assistance, right? Like, I mean, it's just like, I, I just... I, the Times failed not by publishing the piece. The Times failed by not editing it. And Would you agree, though, that, that this sort of, that level and type of mistake is perfectly common? Um, not that, I'm not saying that Times is shoddy. I'm yeah. saying that mistakes about propositions and premises, especially omissions, in op-eds are, are perfectly ordinary, and this sort of thing happens. But, but so maybe the answer is that it shouldn't. I mean, I, you know, I, have, a, I have a piece, I have a Times op-ed that was supposed to come out yesterday. It's gonna, it got pushed back to next week. Um, and you know, the editing process has been quite vigorous. And the fact check, so you know, I'm not Tom Cotton, so maybe they apply different standards based upon- you know, worried about you. Um, so I, 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 I wish the Times hadn't wilted. Like I think, I think the Times could have said, you know, we, we are not proud of the errors in this piece. Right, but we stand by our decision to publish it. Right. Yeah, I, um, I agree with that. That that sounds like what I would say as well. But, um, but I think I mean I also think Bobby tempers are frayed, um, and you know I. But I feel like that's that's when it matters most that institutions be willing to stick to principles. And I feel like I would have said before this Cotton episode yeah. that it would be almost inconceivable for me that the Times would would agree inconceivable. Um, that the Times would agree to publish uh, a public figure's op-ed, and then only after there's harsh criticism say like, ah, yeah, you're right, we shouldn't have done that. I don't know. If I were the Times, right, one, I would have edited the hell out of that piece. Right. And two, I would have solicited an opposition to run right. alongside it. Well, that's just it. Let's contextualize. Let's make sure, if you, if you know you're dealing with something that's inflammatory, Fine. Make sure that you you make sure you are visibly also giving full airing to the opposite viewpoint. That said, I do not doubt that there's plenty of material before, during, and after right. that particular episode in the pages of the New York Times that expresses a very different view. I agree. Um, okay, really quickly on the Insurrection Act. Um, so Senator Blumenthal actually introduced um, a really, I think, well thought series of reform proposals to clean up not not to get rid of the Insurrection Act, Bobby, but to actually impose some more procedural and um, external accountability on uses of the statute called the Civil Act. Um, and just one bit of news, um, it was, he tried to tack it on as an amendment to the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act. Um, it was voted down by the Senate Armed Services Committee last night, apparently on a party line vote. So 
Yeah. Um, we're going to see a know, lot of that, I guess. Heaven forbid um, we not let politics get in the way of reform. Um, all right. Well, you're, you're assuming that everyone who you're assuming that all the Republicans only oppose it because it came from a Democrat. Obviously, uh, that's possible. No, no, no. Or, or Republicans have no problem with, you know, the open-endedness of the Insurrection Act unless a Democrat's president. Um, yeah, well. But, but speaking of the NDAA, something did get through that is going to provoke a fascinating fight with the president of the United States. Which one? Forts. Forts. So part of the ongoing we're, fallout. We're like an hour in and we're still doing civil military shit. I know. Let's, we won't necessarily go to all our topics, but we can be quick from here on out. All right. So an ongoing battle about uh, finally removing the names of Confederate generals uh, from various U.S. military relations. Like bad Fort- Confederate generals. Braxton Bragg was a terrible general. That, that is one of the funnier wrinkles in this story that uh, it's like, well, he, he wasn't even one of the good ones. It's not Fort Jackson. It's right. Fort Bragg. Um, but th- this, or, you know, or, in our, or in our neighborhood, Fort Hood. Right. So it's a serious, it, a serious as a heart attack kind of issue. This, the extent to which people can get polarized and, and up in arms about the renaming of um, long named places in general. Then you add in the civil military relations aspect but just as statutes that people statues that people thought would be there forever are coming down, uh, I think it's really possible, though probably not in the next six months. Uh, it's possible that we're eventually going to see the renaming of federal military installations, like certainly Fort Bragg, um, maybe Fort Hood here in Texas. Who knows? Uh, it's hard to imagine that what they'll do is go around and pick just a few. I would imagine that if they do this at all, eventually under, say, a hypothetical Biden administration, it's just going to be wholesale. If you were a, if you were an officer of the Confederate military, they're not, not going to be um, they're not going to be American uh, military bases named for you any longer. So, as I have two quick things to say because I don't want to belabor this. I, I very much I, I suspect that most of our listeners are not exactly all in on you know Fort Braxton Bragg because. Um, just, just to anticipate two of the president's counter arguments, um, and for, you know, the president really is, has dug in on this one. And, and one of the questions actually I want to put to you is, do you really think he'd veto the NDAA solely over this? Yes, um, absolutely. Why? Because that would be great uh, fuel for him to uh, fuel his base. In but the, but the polling, I mean, so insofar as we care about this, the polling on this, like if you actually look at um, independent voters such as they are, right? This is actually one of the areas where they're totally against Trump. I think he's not he's not going for the independence. He he wants the base and he's gonna hope that not everybody eight percent. That's um, right. So, right. so, so two, this is a galvanizing mechanism. So two quick points on this. So the first is we ought to be clear on when these forts were named, right? So they're one of the one of the arguments you hear in response is, you know, these forts were named right after the war. They were part of reconstruction. Like we're right, know, right. This is all part of like a like an olive branch to, right. to help stitch the right. country back together. Not true, right? Fort Hood was named in 1942, right? Um, these were efforts um, to get local political authorities in the you know Jim Crow South to agree to hand over large pieces of land to the federal government. These names were not chosen, you know, to commemorate um, the both sides instead of the Civil War. These names were chosen to mollify white Democratic, uh, you know, de- mostly Democratic politicians. Yeah, in the uh, definitely in the 1940s. Yeah. So let's just start there. Second, yeah. and this is, this is the larger point to me. I mean, you know, in, in college, I, was, I wasn't just a history major. 
my, my major was focused on historical memory and the creation of historical memory. And we just have to drop the canard that naming things after people and building statues to them are essential to the creation of historical memory. There are no statues to Lee Harvey Oswald, right? We do not fly the Union Jack. Um, that neither of those things prevents us from remembering who shot John F. Kennedy or, you know, who under whose rule the United States was prior to the revolution. Like, you know, memorials are meant to celebrate, not just to memorialize. And I think this is, we can do, you know, Germany has no trouble remembering who Hitler was, despite the absence of any statues to him and despite the actual legal ban on flying the swastika, right? This is just, this is just a, a, it's just a preposterous series of arguments. So I'm looking at, I looked up Fort Bragg to see when it got its name. It was Camp Bragg before that. It had camp status rather than, than full fort status. Looks like it was going back to 1918. So, it's, you know, it's a World War I uh, expansion and uh but but not there'll, but, be, there'll be a version but the the, the fact remains it, it's named for a confederate general um a and, shitty one <laughs> I mean, just, again like braxton brown was a bad for, like, fine you want to talk about robert e lee and we can have a fight over whether he was a great you know great tactician bad strategic you know, strategist fine like but you know it's not just that we're naming forts after generals who fought against the united states in a war in which over 360,000 people died on behalf of the union right it's that we're naming it after bad generals it's just like well, to 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 close to close it out, i'll say that it's i think it's unlikely that the uh unlikely the senate is going to cooperate in this so that you never quite know and then it does seem like the president is pretty bound to veto at least i think he's bound to veto on this basis he'll, I mean, he he'll, is, play, he is he'll at least play that he'll play that game of chicken and he'll certainly threaten until it comes to his desk that he would so please don't include it so i don't think this will end up being in the nda but you never know in part because i think from within the military i think people might be surprised by how much openness there might be to renaming these places well, and you've, and you've seen a lot of you've seen a lot of senior military leaders in the last week and a half right come out very publicly about the importance of, you know, getting rid of these, these, these symbols and these monuments. I mean, the military you know, is an extremely diverse uh, set of institutions. And just as if, if NASCAR can ban the Confederate flag. I was just going there, right? The, yeah. the president's getting outflanked to the left by NASCAR. Like that's yeah. where we are. Good on NASCAR. That was, that was pretty impressive. Um, so I, I just want to say really quickly before we move on, I'm not sure this doesn't, I'm not sure that this actually does fall out of the NDAA. And, and here's why. So. Yeah. This is, here's the, here's the, you know, preposterously um, optimistic view of what's been going on. I have this sense, and it may be totally naive, that some of what's happened in the last two weeks has been an inflection point for Trump. Um, and that Republicans, not, not many Republicans, but a non-zero number of Republicans, right, are starting to see the writing on the wall in polling data. Yeah, that's um, right. Right. And are starting to think like now's maybe the time to safely get off the train. Right. Because I think we're going to get to a point where for at least some Republicans, again, not many, but for some Republicans, the election is going to become about desperately trying to hold on to the Senate. Um, if the polls don't reverse, right, where if it becomes clear that Trump is going to lose, then everything rises and falls on preventing right. holding the Senate rule. And the, and the Senate at that point, the, the Senate's the only chance. But Bobby, some of the Senate polls 
right, are pretty stunning, um, right? You know, the um, Georgia, right, is looking messy for the Republicans. Um, there was a poll last week that I'm not really sure I believe that has um, Senator McConnell tied with Amy McGrath in Kentucky, right? Lindsey Graham tied or ish in the margin with Jamie Harrison, South Carolina. So there's a question to me about That's whether, good. you know, whether there comes a point where Mitch McConnell and a small group of senior Republicans start worrying so much about losing the Senate that we see more efforts to actually create this kind of small impact, but visible distance from the president. Well, speaking of the NDAA, I have not done my patented close read yet to pull out all the sort of odds and ends that might be in there on cyber warfare issues and the like, but I suspect you and I will both be doing that soon. Um, we've been going a while now. What do you say to maybe, just we'll do a real quick note on the executive order on the uh, International Criminal Court. How about that? And, then, and really quickly on Majid Khan. Yeah, should we should we save qualified immunity to uh, do sure treatment next sure week? yeah yeah because you know let let's see what actually emerges in the bill. Okay, so so first of all, Trump, um, the International uh, Criminal Court uh, structure. The United States is not party to it. The United States has long been uh, paranoid about the possibility that that U.S. service members would become the subject of investigation. And uh, now there is a process underway uh, involving Afghanistan where there is an investigation concerning U.S. persons. Uh, this has people alarmed, not just President Trump. There's a, there's a longstanding, at least Republican, uh, set of uh, concerns about something like this happening. And But this is the first time there's been actual concrete action. There's There's been little things like the, uh, you know, the, what do we call it, the Hague Invasion Act, where there's a, there's sort of a pre-delegation of authority to use the military to to remove any uh, U.S. service members who somehow ended up in custody with... Uh, there, was, there was also the visa thing where they started to deny visas to anyone working for the ICC. Right. So now there is an IEPA-based declaration of national emergency IEPA. and corresponding blocking of assets framework that has been created, not yet implemented. No one's actually been specifically sanctioned yet, as far as I know. But it's pretty remarkable. So first, I'll read the operative language of, of the national emergency that Trump has declared. I therefore determined that any attempt by the ICC to investigate, arrest, detain, or prosecute any U.S. personnel without the consent of the United States or of personnel of countries that are United States allies and who are not parties to the Rome Statute or have not otherwise consented to ICC jurisdiction constitutes an unusual and extraordinary threat to the national security and foreign policy of the United States. And I hereby declare a national emergency to deal with that threat. That triggers the availability of the IEPA sanction powers. And uh, there's some stuff about immigration or, or border control, but I wanna focus on section one, which includes this language. Uh, it, it effectively uh, designates the State Department to take the lead in consultation with others to uh, create a designation process to identify for purposes of asset blocking, that is freezing property interest, of any quote, anyone quote, directly engaged in any effort by the ICC to investigate, arrest, detain, or prosecute any US person. And then the same thing for ICC efforts to investigate or arrest or detain personnel of allies who have not consented. And the kicker, also as to anyone who provides material support, goods or services in support of such investigative arrest, detention or prosecution issues. Um, so they haven't 
use this to actually designate someone yet. They, they've been charged with creating the process. That is a serious shot across the bow and, and, and quite a credible signal, not just rhetoric of, of uh, Trump administration opposition to uh, anything resembling actual ICC progress on the investigation of U.S. personnel. I, Steve, my, my sense is that the ICC is going to continue on without they're certainly not going to suspend activities and they, they almost can't. It'd be too much of a loss of face to, to have this happen and then say like, all right, we're dropping that. Never mind. We're sorry. I think they're going to continue on. The interesting question is, and it'll in some senses not be knowable. Will this actually head off any actual attempt to go beyond the investigated stage later on? If they never get beyond the investigated stage, if they never go after somebody in particular, um, we won't know that that's because of this. Yeah, I mean, my, my broader concern, well, I, my broader concern is, is whether it will chill anyone in the US, right? NGOs, human rights groups, law professors. Um, law students. Law students, right? From trying to do anything that might be of any assistance to the ICC, even in cases having nothing to do with the Ooh, could your Could your scholarship be material support, Steve? Writing so, an article about how this is all a, a good thing, it's a good idea, doesn't that provide support to- I mean, uh, I'm reminded of, of what I thought, what, what I always thought was the most stunning exchange in the oral argument in Holder versus Humanitarian, versus humanitarian Law Project back in 2010. Uh, old lady in Switzerland. No, 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 no. no. Oh, no, I'm sorry, you're talking about, I, I was thinking about a different study. You're talking argument. about the, D, the DDC argument. Yeah. No, in, in Humanitarian Law Project, um, I, if, if memory serves, it was Elena Kagan who was arguing as the SG, right? And Breyer asks her whether the um, prohibition on material support would prohibit someone from writing an amicus brief on behalf of an FTO. And Kagan, as SG's answer, was yes, right? And so, you know, I, my concern is at the margins of this thing, principally. I mean, it's, it's terrible policy. It's bad faith. Um, oh, my God, let the dog out of the room. Keep yeah. talking. I mean, we should, Bobby, we, we, we would be remiss if we didn't note that one of the U.S. officials who was front and center in announcing this executive order is someone whose own conduct is being investigated by the ICC, that of Secretary Pompeo, right? Um, so I, I have lots of problems with this sort of symbolically and optically. I'm not sure I understood that Pompeo was somehow in the crosshairs of the ICC. How is that? From his CIA time? I, I having trouble... You know, uh, the, the agency tie, yeah, but Pompeo comes in later than that. I thought he was there for part of it, but I may be yeah, wrong. Yeah. But I, either way, um, the most alarming part of this substantively for me, right, is just how broadly the material support language could be construed. Now, it has to be material support under the executive order to a person, not just to the ICC, right? So that may bespeak a very modest uh, scope and sweep. There's a, there's a vagueness issue here. And remember, folks, IEPA is enforced by criminal sanctions, and there are prosecutions for violations of it. Although I one right now is going very badly. What's that? There's, although there's an IEPA prosecution right now in New York that's apparently going very badly. So that one I didn't look into. Do you want to say a few words about it? You mentioned it previously. Uh, yeah, just uh, last thing on the EO, just I think the other thing, the last thing I'll say about the EO is this, again, is where the election might matter because it's not hard to imagine a Biden administration taking not a not the opposite policy toward the ICC, but at least a less aggressively hostile policy. I think this this will be one of many EOs, including in a bunch relating to national emergency declarations. Most obviously, the border wall stuff. Yep. That on within within moments of inauguration, there will be documents ready to go to uh, repeal them all and suspend all activity under them. 
right, so really quickly on Aipa. So um, first, and this is a plug, if folks aren't already following Seamus Hughes on Twitter, um, they really ought to. Seamus is like this stunningly good researcher of criminal terrorism cases, um, at Seamus Hughes. Um, so Seamus had a, a tweet yesterday um, about this order from Judge Ali Nathan in the Southern District of New York in an IEPA prosecution um, of two guys, Ali Sutter and Bahram Karimi, um, where the government had basically tried to dump both of these cases, one by dismissing and one by issuing a null pros. Um, and it did so after uh, it seemed as if the government had failed to disclose a whole bunch of exculpatory evidence to the, pro to the defense. Um, and so there's a four-page order from Judge Nathan that, Bobby, I I've never seen an order quite like this, that orders the government to list every single piece of information that the government now believes was exculpatory, to identify exactly who was involved in the decision to not turn it over, including supervisors, um, to identify all the government lawyers who decided to transmit other things, right? I mean, like, it is it's calling the government on the carpet for yeah. what it's doing and trying to figure out exactly what kind of prejudice um, should respond, should, 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 you know, what kind of sanctions should be leveled. Um, I say all of this just to sort of contrast it, right, with Michael Flynn. Um, because here's a case where there is clear evidence of government misconduct and where the court is trying to find out exactly what the misconduct was um, by doing it under oath in a hearing, right, where there's the penalty of perjury, right, versus what's going on in the Michael Flynn case where the government has just changed its mind about what he did, right. um, which is not the same thing. Um, really quickly on Flynn, the, the, the mandamus petition, the oral argument was this morning, before a three-judge panel in the D.C. Circuit, judges Henderson, Wilkins, and Rao. Um, my, you know, I, I was just sort of briefly paying attention to it before we came in. Bobby, my sense of it from reading the, the sort of the tweets and the, and the quick reactions is that Flynn's going to lose, um, and he might even lose 3 nothing. Um, that even Judge Rao, who I think was about the most sympathetic judge he could have drawn, was having trouble with the notion that... Um, mandamus is appropriate before the DC, before Judge Sullivan even grants uh, or denies a motion to dismiss. I, I, I'm hardened to know that that was the uh, take of those who observed the argument because I don't feel like it's a terribly close call and it would have been... Part, partly because of, man, I mean, partly because mandamus itself, right, is meant to be such an extraordinary right, like, drastic remedy. This is an area where it's a great illustration of how people, you know, people who take the law seriously, I hope are typically able to see that there's a difference between how you feel about the people involved in the case and what you think the larger politics are and the policy aspects of what they were involved in and how does the law work and how the law works here doesn't make this a hard case. I, I agree. Really but, difficult but to make the argument. The things get complicated. Um, Sydney, Sydney is now on, on screen. Um, hey, Sydney. So we're thinking complicated is, so imagine that the panel rules against Flynn, right? Bobby, I don't doubt for a second that he will um, go to SCOTUS and ask for a stay. Yeah, um, I, I bet they just don't go there. I mean, you know, at a certain point, the clock starts ticking, and what Flynn's going to need at a certain point is a pardon a lot more than having this litigation play out. I don't know that he can get the benefit he seems to be entrained to get here quickly enough if Trump doesn't win. If Trump wins, of course, he, could, he can play out the string. But at a certain point, I'm sure it'll be communicated to the president. I mean, th there's, a, there's a universe in which – some number of months in our future, 
all these issues kind of get mooted by a raft of pardons. I, I can't imagine Trump won't go out the door by pardon. Oh, yeah. No, I, listen, the 11 weeks, but I mean, if things go, you know, conclusively and, and we all wake up on the morning of November 4th with it clear that Trump lost, um, those 11 weeks when he's a lame duck um, a pardon fest. are going to be wild. Um, all right. Um, really, really quickly, I want to just quickly talk about Majid Khan before we do Watchmen. Um, yeah, yeah. So, so the, the trial judge, Majid Khan is one of the only Guantanamo detainees who's actually been convicted by a military commission. Um, and there's been this ongoing, long-running fight over his sentencing and over whether allegations that he was tortured while in CIA and DOD custody should be relevant and should be something for which he can receive sentence credit, um, right, in his sentencing. Right. And last week, in a lengthy opinion that's now public, um, the trial judge answered that question in the affirmative, right? As you say, did not conclude that he was tortured, but did say that if, you know, he's able to make the requisite showing, he's entitled to sentencing credit. Um, and I think everyone understood right off the bat that the reason why that's a huge deal is because if that logic holds in the 9-11 case, then increasingly it looks like, uh, you know, the death sentence we all expect um, is going to be incredibly vulnerable to a similar argument about mitigation, torture-based mitigation. Yeah, I, so I think it's probably right. Um, and in fact, I'm sure that's right. I, when do you think uh, we're going to get to that 9-11 trial? <laughs> so um, the last couple rounds of pretrial hearings have been postponed again. Yeah. Um, so I think time, our, our predictions about uh, January 2021 not coming off, I think we're so pretty They've scared. already given up. They've already, they've already, know, right? They're already back to April 2021. I'm still not going to be that either. No, no. I honestly don't know what date you could say where I'd say like, yeah, they could, they can manage that. Maybe, maybe January, 2022. If you said that the trial would be over by the 2024 presidential election, right? I'd probably take that bet. Yeah. <laughs> probably. Man. All right. Um, what a week, what a time for the country. Uh, normally when we say we're pivoting to frivolity. We're, we're kind of, leaving all that behind. But here, at least uh, when we talk about the Watchmen, it really resonates so much with the current, uh, current issues surrounding policing and race in our country that uh, in some ways, uh, it's just a further exploration. Right? All, as, as you pointed out to me before we sat down, right? Um, all the more so, I mean, just the color of paint and the, and the, and the, and the typeface that DC used to paint Black Lives Matter on 16th Street. Like closely, the visuals themselves almost look like they came from the episode, right? And I know that wasn't on purpose, and that just that at least I don't think that was on purpose. Yeah, yellow paint is what they have. The yellow paint, but also the giant block font of the letters and the camera angles that showed it to us in DC and, and elsewhere where this is happening. Uh, my immediate reaction was like, my God, it looks straight out of the opening credits in each of the episodes. Of we're, notice here for listeners, we're talking now about the HBO series, not the movie. Um, and tune out if you don't want to hear spoilers. And you should tune out if you haven't seen it yet because it's really worth watching. You had encouraged me to watch it at the time. And I just couldn't get excited about it. Didn't know much about it. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm in the camp that appreciates very much the original uh, graphic novel. Um, I enjoyed somewhat the movie, but the movie, I, I'm in the camp of those who felt the movie didn't really do full justice to the... Uh, to the graphic novel, but I, I think this, this imagining of what could come next was so incredibly well done. The acting is off the charts. The cinematography is unbelievable. 
But the, the world building and um, plotting and character development also is terrific. Although I'm a, I'm a little less sure about my judgment on the character development because I'm, I'm worried that I'm really giving uh, the character writing credit that belongs to the actors for bringing these. The actors were perhaps the acting characters. is so good. Okay, so first of all, uh, Regina King may be the, the, best, uh, the best actor in the biz right now. She's just incredible. And, and the Angela Abar character is, is uh, a very worthy leading role. And she really kills it. I, I was a huge fan. Um, but, can I, but, but can I say, I, I was struck, and I'm, I'm curious if you were, the pilot, right? The very first scenes in the pilot. The, the Tulsa race riots, right, of 1921. The show tries from the get-go to make you very uncomfortable. Um, and I really appreciated that. Like, I thought, I thought it was like, you know, we are not pulling any punches about, you know, the, world, the, the reality of the world out there, right? Well, and it's, it's a highly timely message about the uh, cross-generational effects of things that all too often we want to pretend are safely in the rearview mirror behind us. These these more overt horrors, larger scale horrors than than you know we still have horrors today, as as the murder of George Floyd illustrates. Um, but you know it's all tempting to say like, well, 1921, the the, the horrific massacre of black people in Tulsa. Well, that this was terrible, but that was long before any of us were born. So that's more antiquarian interest. No, it's it continues to matter today, which is why. President Trump's decision to go there on Juneteenth to do a political rally is it? I don't. Even, there's not really words for for that. That's I, I don't. I don't. I don't misplaced unless he's going to uncork some speech someone else has written that has the right things to say about this. I, at I a campaign rally that, huh? at a campaign yeah. rally in Oklahoma. Yeah, um, yeah, I don't think so. By the way, did you see the waiver he's making everybody sign? I did. <laughs> you gotta, yeah, yeah. He's not gonna wear a mask. No one's gonna treat COVID nineteen seriously. But you do have to waive liability claims in case you get it. Did you see this picture? Did you see this picture that that Pence tweeted and then deleted? No. So Pence went to the the Trump camp, the Trump Pence campaign headquarters in Northern Virginia, and took a picture with dozens of staffers. Where Pence is on one side of this plexiglass partition, and the staffers are all pressed together. And no one is wearing a mask. And so Pence... They're in a group quarantine, I'm sure. So Pence, who let's just remind everybody, is head of the Coronavirus Task Force. And they um, still have that? Is that still a thing? You know, apparently. Uh, Texas has the most cases it's had at any point. Um, so um, Pence tweets this picture about how exciting it was to meet with all of these volunteers. And then I think someone probably pointed out to him that the picture was photographic evidence that the campaign was violating Virginia law because there were all of these people in close proximity to each other in a non-essential workplace. That's funny. Uh, back to Watchmen. Uh, Sorry. <laughs> uh, what, what did, no, no, it's all, I, I took us down that path originally. What did you think about, you know, one of the big reveals is that Dr. Manhattan has assumed uh, the role. It's, there's a lot of, so this, there's a lot of Christian imagery that goes on here and, yep. and, um, yeah, I, I found that, you know, as a Christian, I'm like, I found that pretty enjoyable to see those kind of call outs because uh, there's a this whole theme of of the deity going into human form and wanting to have that experience. And and so the Cal character really sort of embodies that. I think uh, Yahya Abdul-Mateen, he had a real challenge to play a role that was meant to be low effect to begin with, but within those boundaries to pull off sort of the distinction between being the real Cal, the one who doesn't know he's Dr. Manhattan, 
then being Dr. Manhattan in the flashback scenes, and then being the sort of the, the, the time twisted version that, that doesn't know what year he's in or has having trouble monitoring what time right. he's Experiences in. Experiences all moments yeah. at once. So I thought he was really impressive at teasing out those nuances. And I thought it was cool. I will say, I think the idea that like Dr. Manhattan kind of um, just decides to fall in love with Angela Abar and kind of pick her out of the whole universe, it felt very plot like, well, this whole story only works if we do this. There's not really uh, much reason why it would unfold this way unless, unless one of the themes here is, and, and I do think this is sort of something that the showrunners were working with, predestination. Um, they play a lot with the omnipresence in time of Dr. Manhattan's consciousness. And, and he doesn't save himself when he could. Why? Because he already knows that it unfolds a certain way, which is a pretty direct way of saying like your, your choices don't really matter, that you're, you're on a path and it's going to unfold a certain way. That's a very scary idea, very, very almost in some ways, highly ordered idea, in other ways, highly nihilistic idea. I mean, it's, it's a central fight in science fiction, right? Predestination versus, um, you know, to quote, to quote Sarah Connor, no fate but what we make. Yeah, exactly. So uh, it, it, you kind of have to go that route with Dr. Manhattan. Otherwise, his omnipotence makes it impossible for the bad guys to get anywhere. None of the, no bad things can happen. Therefore, the plot can't move. Uh, by the way, do you think, does Angela get the power or does she fall into the pool? At the end, she, she takes the egg. Uh, I, I don't think the showrunners runners ever really meant for us to, to know. That's, it's a, it's a uh, Sopranos ending in that respect. Well, so this is the thing. Like, like I, I, I go back and forth about how, how much I wanted a season two. Yeah, I, I think that there is going to be season two. It's going to be like, no. oh, that was great. Let's find some way to extend they've, it. They've that said, plot said, is entirely self-contained. They said no. They, they, said, they said they were asked. That I, thought, I thought the show editors were asked to come back, and they said they wouldn't. Oh, good. Oh, I don't think they should. I think sometimes milking it because there's an audience is a bad idea, even if it's fan servicey. There's no way to continue this particular quality unless they take a, a great deal of time to develop a whole new story that picks up much later. Um, I thought uh, Jeremy Irons was. Jeremy Irons was great. A, you know, he he was so Jeremy Irons, and, and he's he's it was delicious every scene. Both he and Lou Gossett, I love the old school nature of having them have such big roles, and they both they both reminded you of, of why they were always such enjoyable actors, uh, stealing their scenes every bit. Uh, Gene Smart was amazing as Agent Blake. Uh, Talk about stealing every scene. I mean, her dialogue was so crisp and funny, and and I, I just loved it. Uh, lots of other deals. I mean, really, uh, Tim Blake Nelson as as uh, Looking Glass. He was incredible. His backstory. I thought the uh, you know the ref, the reflect backwards origin story episodes for uh, for him. Yes. Uh, for Angela, compelling TV. That was really great writing. I just loved both of those. Was there anything you disliked or thought fell flat? No, I loved it. Every episode. Yeah. What about Lady True? Did you like that whole bit? You know, I... Mother, daughter? Um, it was creepy, but it was creepy in a way that I thought worked very well. I thought, I thought that could have been really ham-handed. And by having her be so quick and having... I, I don't have a good adjective for this style where she would be kind of smart and charming, but then would reveal this like, extremely sharp edge i thought that was perfect yeah um the the scenes that took place on europa and, yeah. and the uh the on the on the estate in europa 
that bizarre, bizarre situation was. I also, I, I loved how they unpacked it. Like you, you know, the, we talked about this with Westworld, how sometimes you have no idea what's going on. Right. And in Watchmen, I feel like, you know, it was pretty consistent when they wanted and when the audience did figure out what the steps were. Like when you yeah. start to realize, Oh, that's the top. Oh, like, yeah, that's the timeline. Yeah. Uh, and it, he was, he was in that statue the whole time. That was brilliant. Yeah. It was really good. Yeah. Um, I thought they did a great job of paying off things that they signaled would be important. Yep. They didn't, they didn't sort of leave things sitting around. No. And they, and they didn't always hit you over the head with it. So for example, the, 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 at first I couldn't figure this out and I thought it was just a loose thread they dropped where, you know, Angela notices a guy in a spandex sort of bodysuit chases him. And then he does this crazy, like, uh, you know, juices himself up and then inexplicably slides into a too small space, some kind of superpower, bizarre weirdness, the guy that was following her, uh, and then realizing, and they later confirm offline. Uh, yeah, that was Petey. That was, that was her, uh, superhero loving, uh, partner on the on the case and even and even Lewis Gossett I thought was great yeah I, I'm still a little fuzzy on why was he working how did he come to be working with Lady True that I feel like they didn't do a, a ton with that to explain it especially since he's apparently not actually supportive of what she was up to all along what did you think about what we're supposed to think of Don Johnson is it that he was faking his love and friendship with the A-bars the whole time or are you supposed to think that he was deeply conflicted or that he was um, not racist, but was in this for the greater good of stability and, and, and then really did just have the clan stuff in his closet out of like, I think it's deliberately ambiguous. I think, I think it's, I think they're trying to suggest that there are different reasons why someone could act that way. And they're right? not going to dictate it to us. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's cool. Cause so many TV shows would never let you, they'd set you up with the choices and then they'd force you to accept it. They hit you over the head with what the answer is. Yeah. What do you think, Sydney? I think, I think that's our cue. You want to say hi and bye-bye, everybody? All right, well, um, this is probably one of our longest episodes ever, so maybe let's not wait uh, uh, 12 days again. Before <laughs> exactly. Um, right, we'll, we'll be back. All right, we'll be back probably next week. We'll no see. Um, he's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. Sydney is not yet on Twitter. Uh, we are at NSL Podcast. Um, stay safe out there. Wash your hands. Adios.